Uh, 1 John 2, 18 through 27 is a little bit of an interesting passage. It brings up a number of uh, subjects, characters that maybe you're unfamiliar with or maybe you've heard it uh, in a different light. So I just want to address one of those things right now. And then um, as we move through, it'll, it'll make more sense to you, hopefully. John addresses a couple of different times this Antichrist character. Now, the word Antichrist only shows up in 1 John, 2 John. But you see this kind of character described in Daniel, seen described in Revelation. Now, the individual described in Daniel and Revelation is not who John's talking about. For the sake of what John's talking about, he's talking about anyone who's really opposed to and teaching a false Jesus, okay? And that's, that's who he's talking about. So don't end up in the ditch of eschatology. Don't end up all, all your thoughts trying to think back to the Tim LaHaye Left Behind series and trying to figure out who the, who the Antichrist is. That would be a waste of your time and mine this morning. And so one of the difficulties, I think, when we come into this passage is there is... Uh, almost unlimited access to kind of Christian media. And so sermons, you can, you can podcast, everybody, lots of those people don't deserve podcasts, but you can watch a lot of people on television, and a lot of those people don't deserve, anyway. But there, there's really, it's, it's hard to kind of catch where the plumb line of truth is, right? And so you're, you're watching TV, and so you flip over, and you open up TV Guide, and, and you find that it, in, in the span of just a few hours, you could be listening to Chuck Swindoll, you could be listening to David Jeremiah, you could be watching an old Billy Graham crusade, you could have Creflo Dollar, you could have uh, Joyce Meyer, you could have Joel Osteen, you could have Joseph, Joseph Prince. And so all of these are just kind of like, oh, okay, yeah, this is television, like this is Christian television. And so a person without much discernment watches these, and you consider them all to be just kind of right here, just kind of mainline, just kind of true, and just kind of kicking along. One of the problems we find is that we have a shocking lack of discernment when it comes to discovering what is true and what's false. And so we tend to find ourselves following those things that sound really good to our ears, they really motivate us internally, and we just accept everything that comes out of the mouth of anyone as good. Now, John moves to address kind of how do we stand in the midst of the dissenters? How do we stand in the midst of, from his situation, those who have left? I'm going to just read you, a, read you a quote really quickly. This is, this is from one of those uh, named previously. Speaking of Jesus, he said, He could have helped himself up into the point where he said, I commend my spirit into your hands. At that point, he could do nothing for himself anymore. He had become sin. So we believe that Jesus took on sin, right? This is kind of what we believe. But listen to what she goes on to say. He had be- become sin. He was no longer the son of God. That's a problem. It's a problem. It's a problem, it would seem, that goes all the way back to the day John was writing. What this person argues is that in taking on your sin, Jesus became just human, that he was no longer divine. Now, this is rightly considered heresy, and this is rightly considered heresy that even John addresses back in the first century. And this is Joyce Meyer. Somebody that, that many of you read, that many of you watch, that many of you, you, you have her daily devotionals that go out. This is what she believes. This is what she teaches. That he was no longer God in that moment. In fact, she goes on to teach that Jesus had to be born again. This is clearly wrong. Why? Because all those that need to be born again have a sin nature and are separated from God by sin. Jesus, we believe, and if you don't believe this, man, we need to talk later. 
Jesus, we believe, was perfect and without sin. And because he was perfect and without sin, he took the penalty and the punishment for our sin so that we could come to know God. This is how we are saved. He doesn't need to be saved, okay? He doesn't need to be saved. So we recognize that this first century heresy that John talks about in here, we're tempted to read through this and say, man, this would never happen. Like, we would never see this. But we recognize that just a couple of years ago, someone who many of the women and some of the men in this room listen to and post stuff on Facebook is espousing a believing and teaching this very same thing. We have got to be a people so incredibly careful to discern what we hear and run it through the lens of Scripture before we commit it to be that which we believe. Let me read through 18 through 27, and then we'll walk through. John writes, and he says, Children, he says, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. Listen to what he says here in 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out so that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let that which you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide with the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, namely, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has been taught you, abide in him. Effectively, if you're going to break this up into three different sections, what we find is that in 18 through 21, we have the splitting of the two groups. We have those who have remained in the church and then those who have left. In 18 through 21, we have those who have remained in the church and those who have left. And John draws this stark line between the two. And then in 22 and 23, there's this description of the heresy this group that has left has begun to believe. And in 24 through 27, John reminds them of what is true for them and what they need to avail themselves of in order to resist the onslaught of those who have left, right? And so look, look at 18 through 21. John describes them in terms of, of the, the good group and the bad group, those who have remained in the church and those who have left the church, he says, it is the last hour. And so he, he moves in and he's describing it in terms of from the moment Jesus was resurrected and he ascended on high, this, this last hour has been ushered in. This last period of time before the second coming of Jesus uh, was existing in John's day and is continuing in our day and will continue up until the return of Jesus. He says, it's the last hour. Many antichrists have come. Already now they've come. And this is how we know it's the last hour. It's interesting, is it not, that one of the ways that, that John typifies or describes that we can know this is the last hour is that Christians face persecution and difficulty. 
Christians face persecution and difficulty. There is an active opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ, even going back to 80, 90 or so. And we still see it today. And John looks at it and says, this isn't to kind of throw in the towel and give up. This is an indication that it is the last hour. All these things are coming about because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So he summarily says, therefore, we know it's the last hour. Look in verse 19. This is where he gets really, really interesting. The situation he describes in verse 19. You have this church, much like this one here. Everybody's gathered around. And when you look around, there are a few things that you can tell about the people around you. You can say, uh, she wears glasses. You can say, he has dark hair. He is tall. She is short. Uh, you tend to not make comments about people's weight. But, you know, you can make some, some general observations on people. But one of the things you can't do is look at somebody and just say, okay, first row, save, not save, ooh, save, not save, ooh, save, not save. And so we have no ability to internally look at somebody. And so I can look at Jesse and Anna and say, saved, ooh, ooh, man, I just don't know. Which one is it, you know? I just don't know. We have no ability to internally look in someone's life and say that they are saved or they are not saved. This is the point John's making. When you formerly existed in a church, you guys met, and nobody knew who was really a Christian and who wasn't. But at some point, a, a significant number of this group left. They, they packed up camp, and, and they picked up camp, and they left, and they went up, and they set up over here. And John looks at it, and he says, that is a good thing. You'd say, what? Man, I hate it when people leave. I hate it when, when churches split. What's going on? No, John's not entering into the fray and talking about the, kind of this church hopping that we witness where, where I don't like the carpet, so I'm going to go over here to, to church B, and oh, the pastor got a haircut, I'm going to go back over here to church C, and oh my goodness, I didn't know she was coming here, so now I've got to go to church D, and oh my goodness, them too? I'm just going to stay home and have home church. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about that. He said these people have come over here and set up shop because they quit believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it is a good thing that they've left. Because when they left and when they set up shop over here and then when they began to teach a false gospel, it became clearly apparent to everybody here that they were never Christians to begin with. Perhaps they were causing some problem in the church. Perhaps they were stirring up uh, dissension in the church. And Josh said they went out so that it might become plain to all of us so nobody would look and wonder, is John really a Christian? Is Beth really a Christian? Is Matt really a Christian? But their departure is an indication to everybody that no, they are not saved. Look what he does. He talks about the negative group, and then he talks about those who have remained. Now, those who have remained, you can imagine in their minds that they are shaken by this departure. And it's not just a departure where they're content to sit over there and be on their own, but it's a departure where they continually speak back to those who have remained and say, you don't understand, you just don't know, you're missing the truth. There is some knowledge we have come to, and you're deficient. And if you would know that, then you could come and join us over here. So this whole time, this group who has left is speaking back to the church, communicating to the church that the church is wrong, and the church is malnourished, and the church is poorly taught. Look what John says. He says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. John, in some sense, is pulling uh, at what Paul talks about in Ephesians, Ephesians 1.13, where Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 1.13, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. 
So this is what he's talking about. When you came to faith in Jesus, you recognize that you are a sinner, separated from the love of God, that Jesus died to save you from your sins. You respond to this positively. The Holy Spirit comes in and you are sealed. Now this isn't like a sealing of an envelope where you can open it again. This is like sealed, it is impenetrable, it is not able to be removed, it is fixed, it is sure, it is put there by God, and it will continue forevermore. This is how he describes our salvation. So John looks at them and he says, there's nothing deficient in you. You were anointed by the Holy One. And look, look what he says next to that. You have all knowledge. This group that left and is sitting up over here and is communicating back to them and saying, oh man, we got this juicy tidbit over here, this way of understanding the gospel that would revolutionize your quiet time. We have this little bit that we've tagged onto our prayers that make them so powerful that when God hears the way we pray, he's up in heaven like, oh, I didn't want to answer it, but wow, they answered that way. And so we're jerking God back over here. And so there's all these things they've articulated and added on to their salvation or their understanding of salvation. And John's writing this church and says, he says, no, everything they believe is false. You have everything you need. You have all knowledge. Do you know he's talking about you today? God looks out at you and he says that if you sit in here, if you are a Christian, that you too have the seal of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit has saved you. His seal rests upon you now and forevermore. And he looks at you and he says, there's no deficiency in you. There's nothing you need to add on top of your salvation. God is training and equipping you. He is leading you to be a person who more beautifully reflects his glory. He speaks to you and he speaks to me in the same way. So John reminds them again just that, look, I'm not writing these things because you don't know the truth, but because you know the truth. Look at verses 22 and 23. He really begins to move into the kind of the, 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 the gist of what their heresy is. He says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. So he does something in verse 22. One, he tells us that this person denies that Jesus is the Christ. He's not the Messiah. In essence, he is not divine. It's the same thing we read from Joyce Meyer earlier. He's no longer the Son of God. He says, this is what the person says, this is what they're going to communicate. Now, what does John tell us as a follow-up to that? He tells us the one who, this is the Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. In essence, if you deny, if you diminish, if you belittle, detract, pull from, sully Christology, this understanding of who Jesus is, he's perfectly God, he's perfectly man. He holds these things in beautiful, wonderful tension. And if you do damage to one of these things, you don't just jeopardize your understanding of who the son is, but you also lose the father. So it's not just like you can say, man, I really love this attribute of the son. I really love this attribute of the father. Let me just, just kind of cut these things out, paste it back together, and have my decoupage God, right? It doesn't work that way. If you deny the son, you deny the father. You can't have one and not have the other. Look at 23, he says, the one who denies the son, no one who denies the son has the father, so he ties it the other direction. Conversely, he says, whoever confesses the son has the father also. Well, this is very much in line with what Jesus says in John 14, 6. Flip over to John 14, 6. He 
Jesus speaking in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, and everybody say, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus looks at it and he has this decidedly narrow entry point for salvation and a knowledge of the Father. If you are not saved in Jesus, then you are not saved. And if you are not saved in Jesus, you have no access to the Father. You have no forgiveness of sins. The one who denies the Son denies the Father also. The one who denies the Father denies the Son. So we recognize that there is some difficulty in understanding these things. So we understand the two groups. We have this true church who has remained, we have those who have left. The substance of their teaching is that, that Jesus is not divine, he is not the Christ. Those who have remained, they have this anointing, they know everything, there's nothing impoverished or weakened about them and their understanding. And then what he gives them in 24 through 27 are the ways they are able to withstand those who have left, those who are dissenting. Look what he writes, it's primarily two ways. One is an understanding of the gospel, and the second is a reliance on the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 24, this understanding of the gospel. You want to stand against those who have left? Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Then he says, if that what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So we have this, this question in our mind then, what does it mean to abide? And what is he talking about that is from the beginning? Well, let's think of it in, in terms of a couple of things. That which is from the beginning is clearly an indication to the gospel. At some point, if you're a Christian, at some point, somebody extended the gospel to you. They began to explain it to you. And something happened in your heart where you said, I don't have that, I need that. I don't have that, I need that. And you positively responded to the gospel. You cried out and said, God, save me. God came in and he saved you. And he radically transformed and changed your life. And so John says, that is which is from the beginning. That's what they need to understand. But he writes, he says, it needs to abide in you. Now, the way that he describes this gives us the indication that this is something that needs to have continual impact in our lives. The gospel needs to have continual impact in our lives. And so we have to ask the question of how? Or what does this look like? Well, the first thing that's most important is that we need to understand the gospel, right? We need to understand the gospel. We need to understand that God created everything. That everything we see, everything we don't see, is held together by a God who created, who spoke all these things into existence. This is what the Bible teaches. That man in his rebellion actively rebelled, chose his own way apart from God. And the Bible calls that sin. And so God created man's sin, and then God has uh, the answer for our sin, and it's in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, perfectly, fully divine, perfectly, fully human, but without sin. And so he sent this man, Jesus, to come and to live a perfectly sinless life and to die for your place and to die in my place, to take on the penalty and the punishment of sin. So this is what God has done for us. And this Jesus who died was raised again in three days and sits at the right hand of the Father. And so we understand God created, man rebelled, God sent Jesus, but he calls us to response. It's interesting, is it not, that he doesn't just call us to a mental ascent of saying, that doesn't, I gotta be honest, that doesn't sound completely crazy. And so I think I, I would like some of that with a side of horseradish. 
Like, it's not like ordering something, and horseradish is disgusting. But it's not like ordering something at a restaurant. It's not just this mental ascent. It occupies every fiber of who we are. And so our response is full force. It's not just mental. It's not just physical. It's everything and all that we are responding positively to the gospel. Recognizing God in his creation, recognizing God in his providence, recognizing Jesus in his mercy, and recognizing us in our sin and depravity, and responding and saying, I'm broken, save me. We bring nothing but liability to the table of salvation. And God in all in his, his beneficence and his grace brings his goodness to bear on our liability and cancels the debt of sin. So in order for the gospel to abide in us, we need to understand it. We need to understand it to the point of being able to readily articulate it. We need to understand it. Uh, Secondly, we need to understand and let it abide in us by recognizing that it is a gospel of grace and not a gospel of works. Paul in Ephesians 2, in verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Some of us, many of us, hopefully recognize that we were not saved because God looked down and said, Peter is awesome, like he is killing it. I need Peter on Jesus' team. And so, Pete, would you, would you please do me a solid and come get saved? And Peter's like, well, I was going to go see Beauty and the Beast, but I guess I'll do that instead. And so, like, this is not how salvation works. It's not that God looks down and says, I know you got a lot of really great things going on this week and you're very busy, but if you could pencil me in for a 3.30 salvation visit by the Holy Spirit, we can work this thing out and you can still go to an early dinner, right? That's not how it works. But one of the things when we come, to, we get saved and we recognize God saved me by grace and we get in there and we're like, oh, now I need to build onto that grace because the grace that God saved me was really just kind of this rustic, rambling, lean-to shack and I need to get in there and I need to shore up the walls and I need to get in there and I need to fix the window and oh my goodness, have you been in this shack in the middle of the summertime in Texas? There's no central heating and cooling in this thing. And so we begin to outfit our salvation and what we're seeking to do in the midst of this is to build on grace with works and that's wrong. That's wrong. One of the things of letting this gospel continue to abide in us is resting, is dwelling in the goodness of the gospel. And that's not seeking to build upon grace with works. It's seeking in the security of grace. Thankfully working with God. Do you see the difference? She does. (laughs) One of them looks at it and says, man, God's just going to strip this away from me unless I go out and I do these things. The other one looks at it and says, man, God has been so rich to save me, so gracious to bring me into salvation. My heart beats to work for him, to bring others into the same knowledge, to bring others into the same salvation. So we need to understand, we need to make sure that it's, we're not building upon, seeking to build upon grace with works. We need to not be distracted by those things that are new and novel. Now Solomon uh, tells us in Ecclesiastes that there is nothing new under the sun, but we keep finding new ways of marketing and packaging it. Amen? Keep finding new ways of marketing, marketing and packaging these things. We need to not be led away by those things that are new and novel. In the book of Colossians, in the book of Colossians, in chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul writes it this way. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world. Now Paul writes it this way in 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy uh, four and verse, uh, chapter 4 and verses 3 and 4, look at what he says. 
For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But way of itching years and will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. It sounds like, sounds like, never mind. And will turn away from their listening to the truth and wander off in a myth. We have an amazing ability uh, technologically to acquire for ourselves so incredibly many teachers. And you should to a certain degree. You should find men and women you can listen to that absolutely challenge you with the text of God. That they lay the text of God on your life and you look at it and say, man, I need to continue to grow in this. There is, there is a, a way that they explain it that I never saw this and I need to grow in this. But when we go out and we purpose to discover and find those things that sound good to my flesh, man, I, I like the way this sounds, and I just like the way that my life would be if, if I bring this thing and just apply this truth to my life. What he's describing in here is not resting and abiding in the gospel. He's seeking to make our lives better by finding our teachers, by finding teachers for ourselves, things we can read, things we can know that would readily benefit us in the flesh. Most of these things are. Discernment, biblical discernment, is so incredibly important to keep us from getting tricked to that which is novel and getting tricked into that which is new. And then lastly, one of the ways we uh, let that which we heard from the beginning abide in us is just this process of being thankful, being thankful. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he says, give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Life's hard, right? Life's hard and it comes at you at 100 miles an hour and it doesn't stop. You lose your job, your wife, your girlfriend tells you they're leaving, they're breaking up with you, kids get sick, it's tax time again. Life's hard. So we get in the middle of these difficulties of life, we get in the middle of the difficult situations, and we find things that will immediately make it better for us. And some of us uh, tend to think that the thing which will immediately make it better for us is, is changing some process to our lives. And so we look for this process that we can change that will make things immediately better. But what we read over and again in Scripture, trust in the gospel, Endure difficulties. Give thanks to God. It's completely contradictory to almost everything that you'll encounter. You and your wife are having a hard time. You talk to a coworker. He says, well, come out to me to the club. Just leave her. Man, she sounds like a nag. Classes are hard. Just quit studying. You just get kicked along anyway. Job's hard. Quit it. Go find another one. All of these things, most things in life, when we receive input from those around us, calls us to the easiest option available, the path of least resistance. But part of, hear me on this, part of abiding in the gospel is taking the sweet sorrows of life, trusting God in the midst of this, and confessing to him, I don't want to give thanks. I don't want to be happy. I don't want to steward this blessing. I want something right now that I think is better. That's what our hearts say, is it not? Most of us, 
most of us, in the midst of difficulty and distress, most of us would look at it and would say, God, this is not what I want. I want something else. And I'm going to determine your faithfulness to me on the basis of whether or not you give me this. That is not abiding in the gospel. Abiding in the gospel is, God, I trust you. I don't understand this. I can't smile. I've been in my PJs for like four days. A bath is something I haven't thought about. All I can do is lay on the ground and cry. I need you to give me thanks. I need you to give me joy. I need you to give me hope. Because I choose to abide in your gospel. You have saved me. You will sustain me. This is what it is to be a Christian. It's not to miss out on suffering. It's to be sustained to the point of giving thanks in the midst of it. This is what he calls us to. And this is what this group found themselves doing. Their brother, their sister, their cousin, their spouse had bailed on Jesus. The easy thing for them to do would have been to go over here and set up shop with them. But the difficult thing to do is to abide in the gospel. And this is what he calls them to. And then he ties this. He says, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you too will abide in the Son and the Father. One of the assurances of of our faith and our salvation is our abiding. But recognize this. God ties his, our abiding to him abiding with us. He is keeping us in this. Receive salvation. This is a promise I made to you, eternal life. He reminds them again. I'm writing these things to you, verse 25. Verse 26, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. There is nothing deficient or broken in you. Now look at the second way they stand, verse 27. The anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Our ability to abide rests in our recognition of the gospel, our understanding and resting and daily applying it and dwelling in it. And secondly, our ability to abide, to stave off those who have left, rests in our sweet trust of God's Holy Spirit. He says his abiding is in you. If you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you may not particularly feel overjoyed and glad each and every moment. This is called life. But the good news for you is that his anointing rests in you. And all these new and novel things you hear, that if you just pray this way, God will respond, and you're binding him to come in and answer. And all these things that you hear, if you just understand Jesus this way, or if you just worship like this, you know, all these things will be that much better for you. That's what John tells us. You have no need for anyone to teach you. He says, you know everything. Not in some really obnoxious preteen kind of way. No offense to the preteens. We understand though, right? You have no need for anyone to teach you. Rest in the knowledge that he has given to you. Rest in the midst of the salvation that he has imparted to you. Rest in the gracious work that God has done for you. 
Seek, seek striving. Seek wrestling. Cease to do these things that are moving against and pushing back against the work that God has already accomplished in you. The question is, how do we stand in the middle of the dissenters? We stand in the middle of the dissenters by being fully reliant on God's goodness and grace through the gospel and the empowerment of his Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would just convict us of those moments when we seek to accomplish your goodness on our own, to engage and move and be in our own power and our own authority. Father, I pray that you would remind us, remind us of your goodness to us, remind us of the faithfulness of your Holy Spirit, that which we've heard from the beginning abides in us. Your Holy Spirit abides in us. So God, I pray that you would convict us of that truth. Break us of our self-indulgence. Break us of our attempts at just kind of vain goodness. Father, I pray that you would continue to move in the hearts of those who have yet to surrender themselves to you. Those who are far from you, salvation is for someone else, it's for the weak-minded, it's for the, those with emotional issues. Recognize that salvation is for all of us, from the greatest to the least in man's eyes. So God, would you send your Holy Spirit to move in conviction of truth and righteousness? Would you move them from darkness to light? Would you welcome them into your embrace, that the Jesus who died upon Calvary, calls to them and extends to them salvation in his name. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.